Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention, and violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today, and you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith. Many people who have seen The Trial of the Chicago 7 have been struck by the urgency of the story and the parallels between the events of 1968 and the subsequent trial and what is happening right now in America. And filmmaker Aaron Sorkin has said that the reason he wanted to tell this story was because it has such resonance today. In this episode, you'll be hearing from three individuals who are uniquely positioned to speak to the significance and impact of the events at the time and the ways in which history has been repeating itself. It was a remarkable time in 68. We had just gone through a huge civil rights movement and the passage of some civil rights legislation. We were deep into the Vietnam War and the protests over the war. This is Jill Weinbanks, a former Watergate special prosecutor, general counsel of the Army, and the author of The Watergate Girl. I was graduating law school. I graduated the morning that Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, I woke up to the news that he had been killed uh, just before graduation. And I was at Columbia where Mark Rudd was leading student protests. And so our graduation was under armed guard. And then came the protests in Chicago just before the Democratic Convention. And they erupted into what was eventually called a police riot, meaning that the police had basically caused the problems because of their force tactics, uh, beating protesters and sending many to jail. So it was, of course, you can't help but think of that and be reminded of, for example, what's happening in Portland. You can't help but be reminded of what happened at Lafayette Square and how police can escalate the problem, uh, which is what happened in Chicago in 1968, which is what led to the Chicago 7 trial. The, the parallels are just so uh, apparent to anyone who's lived through both of these times. That's the voice of Danny Greenberg, co-editor of the book, The Trial of the Chicago 7, the official transcript, 
who oversees the pro bono program at the New York firm Schulte, Roth, and Zabel. You have a paranoid, out-of-control president who is so focused on re-election that nothing else seems to be important. You have the complete politicization of the Justice Department, uh, an independent group that's supposed to be the people's lawyers and instead sees itself as the president's lawyers. Um, you have racial injustice. You have Bobby Seale literally bound and gagged, the only black man in, the, in, the, in the, what was then the Chicago 8. And you see the racism that's inherent now in, in what's going on in the rest of the country. You see political unrest. You see people in the street trying to peacefully protest. And you see the use of the police as a force to literally beat them up, to literally shut down all dissent. I asked Maya Wiley, university professor at the New School in New York, longtime racial justice attorney, and a new candidate for mayor of New York City, to speak to the significance of 1968 and the context of that year. 1968 was a pivotal period in the civil rights movement, which we often also refer to as the Second Reconstruction, uh, because it was a time when, after significant victories in the civil rights movement from the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that barred employment discrimination, from the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that finally promised Black Americans that they would have some protections so they could actually vote, that, the, that there was still so much progress that had not been made uh, in racial justice. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And that means that, you know, not just 1968, but 1963, 1964, but yes, 1968 had seen violent um, uprisings in black communities across the country. And that the civil rights movement itself, particularly young people, were starting to say, you know, we're tired of this and we're going to get much, much more activist and much more confrontational, but it was also the anti-war movement in Vietnam and the, the, and the relationship between leaders of those two things. So also young people who are white, uh, Native American, Latino, uh, all kinds of folks, women's rights movement were actively engaged in demanding a massive transformation in the country that had not yet really been felt. And that is something that we're seeing now, right, in the form of the Black Lives Matter movement, in, in the form of the climate justice movement and the demand that we actually do something fundamental, that young people are really coming forward and saying our leaders are not doing enough to transform society in a way that we will inherit opportunity as young people, and that that has produced activism that we're seeing across the country. Jill Weinbanks sees strong parallels between the directive Mayor Daley gave in 1968 to the Chicago police and the treatment of protesters in 2020. If you remember, Mayor Daley said, shoot to kill any arsonists, shoot to maim or cripple any looters. That's what Mayor Daley said in 1968. That then reverberates now with what President Trump is saying and how he feels about what should happen to looters. What this administration is doing is using the 
platform that the president has as president and his social media to foment a distrust of peaceful protesters. And they have not only hurt the protesters who are protesting things of substance like the police shootings of unarmed black men and women, and they are also legitimizing the opposite point of view. Peaceful protests are continuing despite what, what's happening, but the diversion from the substance of what people are saying is what worries me. We've seen Bill Barr, this attorney general, actively support both physically and in words, uh, the kind of federalizing of police action in order to apparently interrupt and disturb citizens from exercising their First Amendment rights. So we saw in Portland the deployment of federal agents, quote unquote, to protect federal property, which they're lawfully allowed to do, but we saw them aggressively attack people. In one instance, throw a man in a van. It wasn't even clear why he was getting arrested in the first place, disappeared for over 20 minutes and then released, which means they didn't even have probable cause to arrest him. That to have a federal government presiding and over that level of constitutional violation with an attorney general defending it and defending and, and executing a president's demand for federal agents to go into cities, apparently to interrupt First Amendment free speech and, and, and possibly violate due process rights and do it without any transparency or accountability to the American public or to Congress, from what we can tell, is shocking. This issue of an attorney general and a Department of Justice servicing a political agenda lies at the heart of the trial of the Chicago 7. And Maya makes the similarities clear. And the parallel here to the, the Chicago 8, later the Chicago 7, is remember that Ramsey Clark, who was Lyndon Baines Johnson's attorney general, originally would not, would not, would not take action against uh, the, the Chicago 7 because it was, a, it was a new statute that was supposed to criminalize, you know, crossing state lines in order to incite riots. And he said, there's no evidence that this has happened. And he refuses to act. And then Nixon wins. And there's a new attorney general, John Mitchell, who we who later gets prosecuted as part of Watergate because he is willing to be supportive of that prosecution. In this clip from the film, you'll hear John Mitchell making it clear to prosecutor Richard Schultz that the legitimacy of the case is not to be questioned. Then there's a bigger question, which is who started the riots? Was it the protesters or was it the police? The police don't start riots. They'll have witnesses who say they started this one. And you'll dismantle them and you'll win. This was ripe for being made into a movie because it was theater. But it was because they understood that they weren't in a court of law. They were in a theater. They were being 
prosecuted because of what they believed and who they were and how they dressed and how they acted. The brilliance of those defendants is that it wasn't that they were disrespectful, I guess in a sense they were, but what they were really saying was by their behavior, this court is illegitimate. This prosecution is illegitimate. You have no right to put us on trial for our thoughts. You have no right to put us on trial for what we believe. You have no right to put us on trial because we dissent. I asked Danny to speak to the broader significance of the trial in the legal community, in its place in history. I think this trial was unique. I think the confluence of who the judge was, who the lawyers were, and who the defendants were, against the backdrop of John Mitchell and Richard Nixon was, to use the now trite phrase, a perfect storm of legal theatrics. I don't think anything has it, had ever come close to it, and I'm not sure that anything ever again will come close to it. Um, I think, it, I think it, it stood out because of the conscious decision by the defendants that they were going to behave toward the system in the ways the system behaved toward them. The behavior and the rulings of Judge Julius Hoffman, played in the film by Frank Langella, loom large over the story of the trial. Here's Jill again. He was ridiculous. He was horrible. And most judges are not that way. In the next clip, you'll hear how the judge's confusion created a circus-like atmosphere. Excuse me. Have we identified the other defendants for the record? Uh, Mr. Um, Weiner. Weiner. Mr. Freunds and Mr. Dillinger. Dellinger, Your Honor. What's going on here? Uh, Your Honor, you're referring to the defendant Dellinger. Dellinger. Um, it's Dellinger, sir. Note the prosecution was referring to the defendant Derringer, not Dellinger. It is Dellinger, Your Honor. Can we straighten this out? Sure. Dillinger was a bank robber. Derringer is a gun. He's David Dellinger, and the judge and I are not related. Most judges would have been able to handle even the misbehavior of defendants in a much better way than he was. And his... Um, holding everyone in contempt, not just the defendants, but the lawyers in contempt and ordering them jailed is like so outrageous that, you know, it's one of those things that people watch and say, oh, they must have made this up. But it isn't. It's true. And sometimes, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. I'm very illustrative of what can happen if bad judges get on the bench. On this subject, Jill points to the kind of judges the current administration has been confirming. We need to go back to having qualified judges. Many have been confirmed who are completely unqualified, who have been rated as not qualified, and who've never had trial experience, for example. It's absurd, and it's a danger because they are lifetime appointments. That means for the rest of you know, the next generation, the courts are going to be run by people who are not qualified. And we have seen in this particular administration 
the need for judges to be able to review the actions of the administration and to make a fair, impartial judgment. The way Judge Julius Hoffman treats Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, who was indicted along with the other seven activists, despite only being in Chicago four hours to give a speech, leads to one of the most shocking and outrageous moments of the trial. I asked Maya Wiley to speak to that treatment and to the strategy of the prosecutors when they indicted Bobby Seale in the first place. That strategy of prosecutors to pull in a Bobby Seale, a Black Panther, someone who, despite the fact that the Black Panthers are uh, the group that started free breakfast and free lunch programs for kids, that's how they organized originally in places like Oakland, California, but were feared because they were militant, because they were willing to say, you know, if you come for us with violence, we're not just turning the other cheek, we will protect ourselves and respond in kind. And that was terrifying to people who were white, who often also believed that black people were just by nature violent and dangerous. As you'll hear in this clip, Bobby Seale was well aware of the prosecutor's agenda. Your Honor, I'm not with these guys. I never even met most of them until the indictment. We will have order. There are eight of us here. We will have order. Free the Chicago Seven. I'm not with them. Mr. Marshall, will you see Mr. Seale? And speaking frankly, the U.S. attorney wanted a Negro defendant to scare the jury. I was thrown in to make the group look scarier. So it tapped all the racist stereotypes about people who are black. And Bobby Seale kind of becomes a perfect foil for white fear. And, and, and what happens in that trial, I think, is indicative of exactly that institutional power and how it gets used to abuse people who are black in additional ways. Because Bobby Seale in that trial has an attorney. That attorney gets sick and is going to have surgery. And the the attorney asked for something that attorneys ask for all the time in trials, which is a a delay in the trial so the attorney can go get the medical care he needs and then come back to the case. That's a routine demand. And in this case, an ideological judge, Judge Julius Hoffman, who is very much politically aligned with the efforts to, you know, vilify and attack the folks who are protesting simply uh, to assert their First Amendment rights and ignoring police violence against them for voicing their views, that this becomes the thing that makes so clear how politicized the trial is, because he refuses to allow Bobby Seale to to get that delay in trial and appoints a lawyer for Bobby Seale, the ultimate, the ultimate taking away of his due process rights unnecessarily. I am being denied right now my constitutional right for legal representation. Will you be quiet? You have lawyers to speak for you. No, he doesn't. And when Bobby Seale refuses to accept the attorney and insists on representing himself, that judge has him bound and gagged in the courtroom with no representation that he has accepted for himself. And that was both a powerful visual of just how racist 
just how abusive of constitutional rights and even just average legal norms that this judge was willing to utilize against a black man. And of course, he also did it against the other defendants in the forms of finding them in contempt. But but that that gagging, that that binding him was such an uh, it's to this day, it remains a shattering image of a system that simply would not be just for black people. The complicated relationship between Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden is a key part of the trial of the Chicago 7. And as the next clip illustrates, the friction between them was about two fundamentally different approaches to change. What's your problem with me, Hayden? I really wish people would stop asking you that question. Dave wouldn't want us to Answer it. One time. All right. My problem is that for the next 50 years, when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. So they're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone-lost, disrespectful, foul-mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. Again, Danny Greenberg sees similarities in the political atmosphere today. As we keep seeing this tension playing out, it really is an important metaphor about how we make change. Some people want to do it within a system. They run for office. They take electoral politics seriously. They form committees. Other people want to be cursing darkness. They want to be outside. They want to be protesting. They want to be angry. They want to coalesce people into uh, uh, groups that change systems. You see it today in in um, uh, uh, people who who say the the road is to just, uh, not just, the road is to elect people who will behave differently and others who say we need to take to the streets and do it. From my perspective, they're both necessary. But setting aside these tensions, Danny, Jill, and Maya all spoke to the importance of civic engagement and the real difference individuals can make. People actually have power to make change. Beginning in Chicago, beginning in Washington, D.C., in every city in the country where people took to the streets, the war actually ended. And the war would not have ended in the way that it did, but for our activism. I haven't mentioned this anywhere before, but um, when I was in college, I was a member of SDS. This is Jill again revealing that she was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society, the group that Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne in the film, co-founded. It was not um, as dramatic an organization as it ultimately became. Um, And Rennie Davis, who was one of the Chicago Seven, was at the University of Illinois getting his master's degree And I don't think I misremember this. I tried to check what year he was there. He was there for graduate work. But I'm pretty sure that he was involved in SDS at the University of Illinois while I was there. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an extremist group planning to bomb anywhere. We were protesting. I ended up actually in law school in part because I got very involved in that. So, you know, I, I feel like I was sort of 
really part of this and then saw the the results in the Chicago 7 trial. But we have to stand up and speak no matter what the danger is, because the danger of not speaking up in defense of democracy is that we lose democracy. So I hope people watching the film now will feel motivated to speak up and to act. And it doesn't take a lot to have an impact. I think just as demonstrators at the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968 uh, showed us by standing up in the face of injustice, of unconstitutional uh, or of government treating them and violating their constitutional rights, they stood up and faced it down. And as a result, they prevailed. And what we're seeing now is folks are not backing down. Do we want to see violence? Of course not. But certainly there's no question that the multiracial nature of the demonstrations, the fact that we have moms in Portland coming to circle and protect protesters, the fact that uh, protesters are not only not going away, but are actively engaged in saying, you know, what we really need are investments in people, in our primary human resource in this country, which is us. As we conclude our episode, I leave you with Maya sounding a final note of optimism. Every time in this country we make progress against injustice, every time we make progress to perfecting you know, our union, to trying to live up to the democratic ideals and aspirations we hold so dear, it's because we use them. We use our right to demonstrate and protest. We use our ability to challenge what's broken or unjust about the system in order to transform it and make it better. And that we bring that even into our electoral realm to say, we're going to demand leaders who actually get this done for us. No more promises. Now we need policy. Now we need to step forward. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Lawrence O'Donnell about this period in history, why the story resonates so strongly today, and what he learned about Aaron working with him on the West Wing. 1968 was the explosive culmination of the most explosive decade in American history since the Civil War. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.